From the Psych Hub Podcast Network, you're listening to You Ask, We Answer. Hi, and welcome to the You Ask, We Answer podcast. I'm Marjorie Morrison, your host, and I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Psych Hub. In this podcast, I ask the most common mental health questions searched online, and I get them answered by world-renowned experts. This podcast is a co-production between Psych Hub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry and is made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcasts at psychhub.com. Welcome back to the show. We have a great episode today. So we're going to talk about depression, definitely something that we all can relate to from different times in our lives and people around us. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Jared K. O'Garrow-Moore, who is an assistant professor in medical psychology in psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Dr. O'Garrow-Moore specializes in the treatment of adults with mood and anxiety disorders, as well as personality disorders. He has advanced training in cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, which I am actually the most excited about because so much of what we do at Psych Hub is training providers, behavioral health practitioners on these evidence-based interventions, and then educating consumers about what they are so that they're educated on them. So the fact that you do CBT, DBT, and ACT is actually like super, super exciting for us. And I want to like kind of delve into it and get to know uh, a little bit more about that. So first of all, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, depression is one of those words that we just throw around. We throw around like, I'm feeling depressed, which everybody can feel depressed. I always say like, if you don't know how to feel sad, how would you know what feeling happy is, right? Like everyone can feel depressed, but that's different than depression. And then there's different kinds of depression. So just what is depression? <laughs> what is depression? Yeah. So no, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. So uh, depression is not just feeling sad, right? I think Everyone knows that your mood can fluctuate hour to hour, day to day. For me, if, you know, I'm a, I'm a Eagles fan, so if the Eagles lose, I'm going to feel pretty sad. If, um, if you know, I get into a crowded subway car, I'm going to feel pretty, also very sad, right? Everyone has small fluctuations uh, in their mood, and that's pretty normal. It's pretty typical. However, when we're talking about clinical depression, what we're describing, what we're talking about is pervasive and chronic feelings of low mood lack of interest, as well as extreme fluctuations in sleep. So sleeping a lot more or sleeping a lot less. Also fluctuations in appetite. So eating a lot more, eating a lot less, so much so that it can lead to up to between five to 10 pound change in your weight. Uh, But also things like decreases uh, in energy, uh, concentration, and even what we see is kind of just physical or psychomotor agitation or slowing. So that's when you physically feel revved up or you feel very like lethargic, almost like you're moving through water. Um, and finally, we know that with depression, often people will also have suicidal ideation. So really questioning uh, what their worth is for their life, or even thinking like you know, their life has no meaning uh, to its most severe actively trying to harm themselves. Now, as I said before, everyone feels sad. And, and you could, as I went through that list, you were probably like, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe one or <laughs> but the, the, the important piece is always about functionality, right? Are we actually noticing changes in work, school, uh, relationships with others? 
if we are, then that's what actually we would consider to be. So it's like has to do with how it affects your life. It starts to have implications in your personal life or in your work life. Absolutely. I mean, if you're feeling sad, but then, and you're like not eating as much, feeling a little bit guilty, but like nothing changes in your life. Well, is it clinically severe? Probably not. Okay. So that's interesting. So that's the differentiator is that, is it, are your, is your life functioning the same as it used to be? Then it probably is more of a state that could come and go as opposed to if it's really affecting an area of your life and that is no longer working at the way it was before. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thinking about just as an example, it just came to my mind is uh, bereavement, right? When someone or grief, when someone that we care about or someone that we love passes away, it's pretty common for us to feel a lot of those symptoms that I just described. However, we know that those tend to remit and at times they, yes, they will have an effect on our lives, but they maybe may not affect our school, our, our work and so on and so forth. If they do, then that becomes more serious. Interesting. So my next question for you that I think that our listeners will be interested in is, how does it happen? Where does it come from? Is it something where it's triggered by something like you just brought up bereavement or grief, or Mm -hmm. maybe it's, uh, you know, something else happens in life, either a death or you lose a job or you have a breakup or you, you get, you know, some trauma that was unexpected or not disaster? Is it something that happens or are you born with it? And is it something that, you know, a nature versus nurture? I love that question. Nature versus nurture. Um, so it's actually both. It's always nature and nurture working together. So the way we tend to think about this is that there is this model is, is thought of as this gene environment interaction right? or diathesis stress model is what some people call it. Uh, But essentially, this is a similar model to what we think about with complex diseases like hypertension or diabetes, where our genes or our biology can lay the groundwork for our vulnerability for something, right? But depending on the foods we eat, depending on the the toxins that we're exposed to, depending on the stressors that we have in life, it may or may not be acted on, right? Same thing with depression, where we know that with our biology, there are a few things at play. There are neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are just these chemical messengers in our brain that, can, uh, that are in charge of things like serotonin, norepinephrine, or dopamine. And what a lot of research has shown is that either there is not enough of these neurotransmitters that are produced, or there is a reduction in our ability to metabolize those neurotransmitters. So we don't actually kind of feel you know, that serotonin bump, that feeling good. We don't get excited about certain things. We don't feel that sense of calm when we're doing certain things. And that's associated with depression, right? But there's also biologically levels, elevated levels of cortisol. And cortisol is an adrenocortical stress hormone. Essentially, when we feel very stressed, when our fight or flight or freeze mechanism gets kicked on, our body secretes cortisol. And what we know is that chronic exposure to elevated levels of cortisol is also associated with depression. So think about it. If you're someone who maybe, you know, serotonin doesn't, doesn't, isn't as isn't produced as much as someone else, or just for whatever reason, you have a lower threshold for your body to produce cortisol. Well, again, that's your biology. That's just, some people are just different. And that won't necessarily mean depression unless it's acted on by some type of stressor. So this can be, like you said, early life trauma, neglect, physical, sexual abuse, exposure to crime, things like that 
right? Or, or those like traumatic events that they, they do shape how we feel and they do can affect our feelings. Uh, as well as things like interpersonal conflict, witnessing or even being in combative relationships, domestic violence, and finally, social isolation. Like I said before, we, you know, we people, we are kind of pack animals. And so when we're isolated, when we're not around a lot of people, we also don't get this positive reinforcement from our environment. Right. Exactly. So that can also have an effect. It's so, we've really learned that so evident here with COVID, just seeing what happened when we all isolated and then you added fear on top of it, you know, just that feeling of we're all going to die or seeing people get sick and living in that fear and then adding isolation in it. So have you seen an uptick in depression? I was just going to interrupt you to say that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The the research that's out there now is that not only have we, I'll speak for, for the U.S. because I've seen those studies on that. The U.S. has seen an uptick in rates of depression among just the general population. Um, but also, we also know that there have also been uh, more incidences of people actually seeking mental health treatment. So a lot of the healthcare systems that are out there have wait lists that are extremely long yeah. to the point that they've never seen them this long before. So not only are people feeling kind of worse off, but then we're seeing kind of a stress on the system. So, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's such a such a scary difficult time just for so, so many, so all of us really to have just a major change in all kinds of things. It really was a reset of many different things. And now as we're slowly coming back out and we have a labor shortage and people are, you know, not working in a supply chain and we're seeing all of these kind of repercussions that then life as usual isn't going back, you know, and everything feels different and there's still some fear and things like that. So before we get into treatments, because I'm super interested in this, I was wondering if you could help help our listeners understand the different types of depression. Because I, you know, I I I will say that people will throw out terms like dysthymia or this person's dysthymic or treatment resistant depression, TRD, and you know, there's just major depression. And so I was just wondering if maybe you could help our listeners just kind of understand the breadth of depression as far as diagnoses and where all of that falls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess one of the best ways to think about it is that it's to think of it as almost like um, depression is under this umbrella of mood disorders, right? As I said before, you know, our mood typically is, can fluctuate up and down right, throughout the day based on things that happen to us. And when we're thinking about what, as I described earlier, major depression, what we're talking about is a severe just dip in our mood that can last two weeks to about a month or maybe even longer, but then there is some kind of return to baseline or maybe just a little bit lower. That's what we consider depression. But when someone's talking about dysthymia, uh, that's a two-year period when someone is having a low, maybe not as low as what we consider a depressive episode, but somewhere kind of in the middle, but it just lasts a lot longer. It's almost like a lingering kind of feeling. I, in, in talking to some colleagues, I, I tend to describe it almost like a uh, Eeyore, always kind of like low. That's what we consider dysthymia. But yes, there are a number of other ways that depression can rear its head, right? So we see it in terms of bipolar disorder. We also see it with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, other different uh, kind of areas in which it can pop up, but they're all different. And so then that goes to treatment. They're all a little bit different. Is there a single type of treatment that works best for depression? Are there different subsets that are more effective? And then how Somebody who does CBT, DBT, ACT, how do you pick? I mean, I would just love to learn more. Maybe just start with types of treatment and then how they all, I just, I'm just super curious on this too. Is there a single type? 
no, <laughs> there's not a there's not a one size fits all because everyone is different. Everyone's unique. And so is their depression can also be pretty unique. But but to answer this question more, more, I guess, generally. So what we do know is there is a gold standard for treatment. That gold standard is medication with some amount of psychotherapy, some type of psychotherapy. Right. So either one of these medication or psychotherapy could be sufficient, depending on the acuity of someone's symptoms. Uh, but as you asked me, I'm a psychologist, so I'm going to focus on the, on the psychotherapy piece. And so in terms of psychotherapy, you're right. There could be the CBTs, the DBTs, the ACTS, the IPTs, the psychodynamic, all the different treatments that are out there. Now, some are more researched than others in, in clinical trials. But interestingly, um, not, no one of them has actually consistently found, been found to be like far and above better than all the others, which is kind of speaks to this idea that it may not be so much about the particular treatment, but about kind of what the person is responding to, like how the language, how much they kind of take to the language of, of, of what they're being treated with, as well as the processes that are targeted in treatment. Right? So for example, when I say processes, I mean things like emotion regulation. Um, when we are feeling depressed, what do we all want to do? We all want to stay in bed binge watch Hulu or Netflix or something like that, put the covers over our head. But that doesn't really tend to make things better, maybe in the moment, but long-term it doesn't. Right? So part of treatment is also understanding what behaviors, what things that we're doing that are actually exacerbating what we're feeling or mitigating it. There's also cognitive reframing that can happen. So cognitive hmm. reframing is also, it's about noticing your thoughts and being able to challenge them in a moment. So if I'm like, oh my gosh, Marjorie hates me right now. There's no way she likes me. I am bombing this, this interview. <laughs> then Hardly. How is that going to make me feel, right? I'm going to feel terrible. I'm going to maybe like, you know, kind of uh, hold up a little bit, maybe even stutter over my words just a little bit. But that has an effect on me, right? My thoughts are having an effect on how I'm performing or what I'm doing or what I'm saying. So cognitive reframing is about noticing, oh man, I'm having this thought and being able to challenge it, but also pull yourself back to what's important, which is me speaking to you. Um, but there's also, you know, careful exploration of past events, past traumatic events, attachment and interpersonal relationships. As I said before, we don't exist in isolation. We are pack animals. And so the transactions that we have with people are important. If I'm feeling sad and I withdraw from family and friends, doesn't really give me a lot of room to get positive reinforcement from the people that I care about. And so treatment's also about being able to behaviorally activate or approach or extend yourself, even when you really don't feel like it. it I love how you just explained all that. It's super interesting because, you know, some of it is, when you think about medication, it's more passive for the person experiencing the symptoms, right? Like, you know, we're so used to that with our physical health. You get sick, and if it's a bacterial infection, you take an antibiotic and you don't really have to do anything, but remember to take that pill and then you get better and it makes it go away. But the way that I interpret how you described it is that you take medication, which is falls in that kind of passive role, but then the treatment's actually the active piece mm -hmm. that the person who's going through it is actively working on. And I love the way that you described this, you know, cognitive reshaping. Is that what you talked about? Is that what you called it? Where it's, it's in the moment. I always kind of, Somebody once said to me years ago, and it just stuck with me, which is like really in simple terms, the stages of change, right? That the first stage is it happens after you do it. The second stage is you, you realize it while you're doing it. And eventually you catch it before. And so I think that 
it puts, when we think about that or how you described it, it's like puts the person who's experiencing the depression in control. A certain mm-hmm. sense gives them the ability to like learn new, new yeah. ways to think and to challenge our thinking. Cause yeah. it's so true that the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, I mean, I, I have this too. Sometimes like, you know, I have to fact check myself. Like, wait a minute. Am I, I'm imagining that I, you know, and I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was at something last week and saw a bunch of people I didn't know. And my friends that I was with, I was like, did you get that sense that she was giving us like the cold shoulder? And we, and we, you know, but, but it is sometimes I have to say it to someone else to fact check, like, was I imagining that or that in my head? So I think it's really, really important because then what therapy can do is give someone skills that they can continue to build on, even when they're not seeing a therapist anymore or don't see it as frequently. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it, sometimes we don't always know how to catch those thoughts that are coming up in our mind. Like, did someone actually, was they, were they giving me the cold shoulder? Sometimes we just don't know. And so, you know, I, I like to think about uh, psychotherapy as something that it is teaching you how to affect your life differently. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I was working with a supervisor a long time ago who used to always say, um, you know, don't be at the effective life, affect life, right? Which is putting you at the center of, of your world, you know? And and it's true. You know, I think that therapy is work. If it just feels like you're just kind of unloading and it's a great time, and you don't have to work. Then I, don't know, I, I tend to think mm-hmm. that there's a lot that goes into it where you have to also, you know, put yourself out there, especially when it doesn't feel comfortable and, and exercise those skills that we're just talking about and kind of learn how to affect your life just that much differently. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, is committed to improving more lives in more ways. Every day, more than 275,000 HCA healthcare colleagues work together to positively impact patients, each other, and local communities. With more than 230 behavioral health programs across a connected network of treatment centers, HCA Healthcare is in a unique position to make a difference in the lives of those with mental illness and related disorders. Do you mind if we pivot to kids? Because we've just heard so much about the youth and adolescence and depression lately. Really, really scary statistics coming out right now. What does, does depression look different when we're talking about adolescence um, and kids? The same? (laughs) Yes. So there, yeah. So, I mean, a lot, a number of the symptoms will be similar. So in terms of concentration or, or appetite or sleep sometimes, but the biggest difference, the biggest difference between children and adolescents and adults is that children and adolescents don't actually express their sadness or depression with low mood. They actually express it with more irritability than anything else. So like school refusal or having tantrums, mm. that's what we tend to look at as saying that is actually the, the biggest difference in how to recognize it uh, with children. Another telltale sign is, is, is weight loss, right? So I talked about appetite dysregulation, but uh, one of the ways in which you can catch it is noticing that, you know, is my child actually reaching their developmental milestones in terms of weight at the time that I would think was appropriate? If not, and they're underweight, then that might also be a, a way to recognize what's going on. Now, I, I absolutely agree with you that it's, it's, this is a pretty serious thing because what we know is that Depression typically begins around adolescence, right? Like between 13 and 16, 17 years old. But the younger someone is actually diagnosed with depression, this has 
This is associated with higher risks of recurrence in adulthood. It's associated with more depressive episodes in adulthood. And we know that for those adults that, that had childhood depression when they were younger, they also had higher rates of suicide than those without. So oh, wow. it's extremely important to catch it early, to be able to provide treatment early, to kind of intervene um, when we can. So it's it's got to be such a fine line for parents too to know when something's clinical and when it's not. And then, you know, I don't, I just wonder if, is there also this concern with kids where if you put a diagnosis on them at a young age, then do they own that and sort of go through life with the sense of, oh, I suffer from depression. And, um, and I guess so much of that is, I'm sort of answering my own question here, but so much <laughs> of that is the messaging going back to the sense that we can, we can, work within these diagnoses that doesn't mean that that we're stuck in that and that these right like someone who has depression can work through it absolutely i mean to have depression doesn't mean that you are depressed right like you are someone who is who's who's dealing with depression at a moment in time and we do know that again medication and psychotherapy are extremely effective with being able to help with it so just because you have depression doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you have to carry all your life. And it's, again, it's just part of you, just like you would have at some point in time kind of have high cholesterol or maybe high blood pressure at some point, you can do something about it. I think that's just such a key, important piece with all of this. So I think maybe my last question is for those listeners out there who are in a relationship with someone, whether friends, whether it's intimate, with mm-hmm. someone who either exhibits depression and and this is like such a hard thing. So I'm asking you a hard question because mm-hmm. so many people just don't know how do you broach the subject? How do you help the person? What can you do? You know, so I just, if you have any advice for our listeners that might be in that position, who might be listening to you either thinking for themselves or for someone that they, they care about. Yeah. Well, first I want to acknowledge and maybe validate this idea that or maybe the awkwardness around being able to broach that topic, or it doesn't feel good to say, hey, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling low? Like, what's going on? And to borrow from some DBT language, you have to sometimes go where angels fear to tread. You have to engage. And so when you are with a loved one who is suffering from depression, um, I think the keys are to A, validate, show understanding that you see that someone's actually going through a difficult time, but then B, actually encourage them to seek help, right? What we know is with depression, one of the hardest things is being able to take that first step to call that provider. And, you know, navigating a lot of healthcare systems isn't always an easy thing to do. It's not always straightforward. And so even if you can help them kind of get that first appointment, I think, you know, that is that first step. But, you know, what we know is that the thing sometimes we do where we don't want to point out the elephant in the room, it doesn't help us get anywhere. Right. And so, Sometimes it helps just to go straight toward it and, mm-hmm. and uh, acknowledge what's, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but seek help for yourself, right? I mean, it's not easy to see someone that we care about suffering or in pain. Yeah. And that can also take a toll on ourselves too. And so, you know, I if it feels like you are also one who is not only struggling with work, school and personal relationships, but also struggling to even know how to take care or help someone that you care about, seek help too. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's helpful when we, when we know that we actually can 
and help ourselves to help other people as well. We can all benefit from help is basically the, yeah. the piece of this. <laughs> and I, I love, I love that. You are great. I, I am envious of everybody who gets to be treated by you because I would imagine that you bring so much energy and, and you know, just warmth to treatment, which is so, so important. And you, it really feels like you do it in a very non-stigmatizing way, which Thank is you. great. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think of that you wanted to sh- people to know? Hmm. Yeah. The open-ended <laughs> question. That's a good one. <laughs> like the one that I was like, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I, I think, um, you know, you alluded to it earlier, but the pandemic has changed a lot in terms of everyone's day-to-day, their lives, even the people that we care about. You know, some of us have lost people to it. And so what I do want to stress is that if you or someone that you do know or care about um, is having a difficult time, is, is struggling with depression, to, to seek help, to say something, to do something about it. Uh, I think the one way that we can, you know, ensure that our stuff suffering stays a suffering is to not act. And so um, I guess I'll just use that as my own PSA, <laughs> just to say, reach out if, if you know something is wrong or if you notice something is wrong. I, I love that. Reach out. And then the other side of that is for everybody else, be receptive. And know that when someone does reach out, it's really hard to do and that we have to do exactly what you said, acknowledge it, listen. And I always say too, like, you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know how to solve it. You just have to be able Mm -hmm. to listen and then be able to help guide them to getting some help. Well said. I like that. You were awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. I learned a lot. I have no doubt our listeners really learned a lot and it's a, a really important message overall in this is that depression is treatable, some medication coupled with some therapy, the right therapy for you, whether it's DBT, whether it's CBT, whether it's ACT, whatever one feels like the best fit for you and the combination of both, people can live really full and meaningful lives. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It This was fun. Thanks for listening to You Ask, We Answer, a co-production between PsychHub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to the PsychHub YouTube channel, where you can watch shorter animated video episodes of You Ask, We Answer. And don't forget to like or subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcast at psychhub.com. The You Ask, We Answer podcast, presented by HCA Healthcare, brings you answers to the most common, intimate, real-life questions patients ask. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, uses its more than 32 million annual patient encounters to advance science, improve patient care, and save lives. With 182 hospitals and approximately 2,000 sites of care, HCA Healthcare's behavioral health experts are committed to reducing mental health stigma and helping patients access the resources they need when and where they need it.